Thanks again for joining us at Prairie View this morning. We're happy to be with you here. And this morning we continue in Paul's letter to the Philippians, picking up at the beginning of chapter 3. Now, based on what we read in chapters 1 and 2, we know what Paul's situation is. He is suffering in Roman chains. He's suffering because he'll soon have to give a defense of the gospel of Christ in front of Nero, a man who notoriously hates Christians. And he's suffering because other preachers out there are out to get him. But in the midst of it all, Paul retains his joy. He retains peace that surpasses all understanding. But it is only through Christ alone. Last week, Paul challenged the Philippians to stand firm and united in the face of their own suffering and hardship. They face pressure from outside of the church, and they're tempted to splinter from within the church. But Paul encourages them to be marked by the love and humility of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Everything that Paul has said so far in Philippians comes back to Christ. Paul can suffer with joy because of Christ. Paul can confidently stare down the possibility of his own death because of Christ. And the Philippians can be the people Paul challenges them to be. People marked by love and humility because of Christ. They've been given the mind of Christ by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. They are called to think like Christ. And they're called to live like Christ. Now this week we shift from the somewhat optimistic, somewhat encouraging Paul to a more confrontational tone. And we begin to learn more about the opposition that the Philippians are dealing with. As we just saw for Paul, everything comes back to Christ. But the problem is that not everyone agrees with him. Some are trying to take the Philippians' eyes away from Christ. So in this passage, Paul warns the Philippians about the folly of looking to anything but Christ. And he gives them this warning from his own experience. So open up to Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one. And take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together. As a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, There is great chaos in this world. There is great heartache and pain and suffering. And yet, for one hour on Sunday morning, we can come together and be reminded that you are God, that you are good, you are powerful, you are gracious, you're sovereign. You're holy. And so, Father, I pray that when the storms of our lives come, like the storms that the Philippians are dealing with, I pray that we would look to you for stability, that we would look to you for peace and joy and hope. So, Father, thank you for this morning, the passage that we read, the opportunity that we have to be in your word. Give us ears to hear what it is that your spirit has to say to our church. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, at the end of chapter two, Paul says he is sending both Timothy and Epaphroditus to Philippi. These are two men who have served alongside Paul faithfully. They're godly men who love Christ. They love Paul and they love these Philippians. 
It says that Epaphroditus nearly died for the cause of Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul reminds the Philippians yet again to rejoice in the Lord. But then we get to verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3, and we start to see that change of tone. Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul pulls no punches. Right off the bat, he insults the Philippians' opponents by calling them dogs. Now, I apologize to all the dog lovers out there, because I'm one too, but being compared to a dog in Scripture is never a good thing. In that day and age, dogs were mangy, dirty scavengers. Most people viewed dogs as a nuisance, and many Jews viewed them as unclean. So it's not exactly an endearing title to be called a dog. But then Paul goes on to label these opponents evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Now, what exactly does he mean there? Well, Paul's talking about a people that he's run into multiple times in the New Testament. He's talking about people who he's had multiple confrontations with throughout his ministry. Paul's talking about Judaizers. In the New Testament, a Judaizer is a Jewish person who confesses Jesus as Lord, but still insists that you must obey the law of Moses to be saved. In other words, a Judaizer would say that the only way to really, fully, truly be saved is to believe in Christ and obey the law and become a Jew. And what makes a Jew a Jew? It's obedience to the law. The law was a yardstick to measure your relationship with God. If you obeyed the law, your relationship with God was in good standing. But if you disobeyed, you ended up in God's doghouse. Now, the main problem that Paul has with this is the idea that a Gentile, a non-Jew, was unable to have a relationship with God even if they confessed Jesus as Lord. They couldn't stay Gentiles. They had to become Jews. They had to obey the Old Testament law in addition. Now, arguably the most critical part of obedience to the law was circumcision. We read it back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. God says to Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I remember when I was first getting into ministry, I was in college and I was volunteering by leading a middle school Bible study. We came across a passage where a young guy, sixth or seventh grade, spoke up and he said, Hey, I read all this stuff in the New Testament, but what's circumcision? And I remember the senior pastor of the church, much older than me, probably in his 50s or 60s, had walked in and was just kind of sitting in the corner observing us leading this Bible study. And when this kid asked me that question, I kind of looked at him and said, well, you're going to take this, right? I mean, you're the one who gets paid for this, not me. Well, the senior minister just kind of looked at me and said, well, I'm going to assume that I don't need to explain circumcision to all of you. But at one time, circumcision... And obedience to God's law was the definitive symbolic marker 
of who belonged to God's family and who didn't. But Paul says that because of Christ, the times have changed. Through Christ, a new covenant has been established. And we start to see his argument in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says that circumcision is no longer the mark of God's people. What marks a person in the family of God is not some physical bodily alteration. What marks one of God's people is worshiping by the Spirit. It's glorifying Christ. It's putting no confidence in the flesh. If you want to know who's a child of God, if you want to know who belongs to God's family, that's what you look for, not circumcision. Physical, external circumcision is outdated, according to Paul. It's no longer necessary for a relationship with God because Christ is the all-sufficient criterion for belonging to God's family, gaining good standing with God the Father in spite of our sin. Paul says more about this. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Paul says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. The whole letter of Galatians is totally committed to this point. It's even more intense, Paul confronting the Judaizers. And he says there, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What Paul is saying is that the inward change that only the power of the Holy Spirit can bring about, the inward change that only God's grace can bring about, that's what identifies a person as one of God's people. The law can't do that. The law can't change your heart. The law can't change your mind. Sure, if you obey the law, your body might look a little bit different, but your heart and your mind are still the same. Only the Holy Spirit can change your heart and your mind. What marks you as one of God's people is what happens inside, by the grace of God, not what happens on the outside. Now, this example of circumcision is simply the most obvious example of a much bigger point That Paul is making a much bigger problem that Paul is addressing. It's this idea that our salvation rises and falls on our ability to obey the law. It doesn't. The Judaizers say that our salvation is based on our efforts to prove ourselves in righteousness. But our salvation isn't based on any of that stuff. Our salvation isn't based on our own righteousness. It's not based on whether or not we're Jewish enough. It's not based on our ability to obey the law. Our salvation rises and falls on Christ alone. The one Jew who perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament law. Now, before we go any further, let's be honest. You read a passage like this, and it seems to be completely irrelevant to our current time. I assume this is a conflict that 
none of us have ever really had before. You've probably never been told that, you know, it's great that you believe in Jesus. That's an important step. But to have a relationship with God, you have to be Jewish, too. You've probably never heard that. You've probably never been told that in order to have a real relationship with God, you have to be circumcised. I assume you've never heard that either. However, like we just mentioned, this case of circumcision is simply the most obvious example in Paul's world of a bigger problem, a bigger principle. This idea that salvation requires more than Christ. The same conflict occurs today. The same problem is around today, even though it might sound a little bit different. You might not hear hear circumcision brought up, but you might hear something like this. Yeah, believing in Jesus is the first step, an important step. But to gain entrance into God's family, you still have to work really hard. You have to be pure. You need to fix that sin of yours first. You need to be more generous. You need to be more honest. You have to vote Republican. You have to vote Democrat. And then once you've done all that stuff, maybe then you can enter into a relationship with God. Once you get your life together, once you figure things out, maybe then God will allow you into his family. The problem is still around today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. To this day, 2,000 years later, we still have a hard time believing that our right standing with God is accomplished in the work of Christ, rather than our own. Now, as we get back into our passage, Paul continues addressing the same issue, continues his argument, but he does it in a different and peculiar way. Paul just said that salvation isn't based on being Jewish. It's not based on being circumcised. It's not based on proving yourself obedient to the Old Testament law. But Paul says that, you know, even if that were the case, even if all that stuff was true, even if the Judaizers were right, Paul says that he would beat them at their own game. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If being saved is about being Jewish then Paul is the Michael Jordan of Judaism. He's the Babe Ruth of circumcision, the Tom Brady of obedience to the law, or Peyton Manning, if you prefer that analogy. The point is that Paul's resume is pristine, circumcised on the eighth day of his life, just like the law says. Born from an illustrious tribe, the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that went with the tribe of Judah, when the two kingdoms of Israel split in the Old Testament. Benjamin and Judah were the only ones faithful to David's family. Paul says he was a Pharisee, highly regarded expert in the Old Testament law. So if you want to argue with someone about the Old Testament law, Paul's not your guy. He will beat you up on that. 
Paul says he was zealous for Israel's purity. So zealous that when he thought the Christians were wrong, he didn't hesitate to kill them. He was just like Phineas in the Old Testament, a man who was willing to kill to keep God's people pure. Paul even says that he was blameless, obeyed every ritual the law orders. Before he was called by God, Paul was the star pupil under Gamaliel, the greatest Pharisee alive. He was a brilliant young religious leader, skyrocketing up the ladder of success. Everything was going well for him. If there was one person who could ever take pride in his own righteousness, could ever boast in his own flesh, could ever dare suggest that he doesn't need anyone's help gaining access to God. If there's one person who could make that claim, it's Paul. But then just when Paul was at the top of his game, just when Paul had everything figured out, God rocked Paul's world. God intervened in Paul's life. Paul was knocked off his horse and he met the risen Christ. And Paul was never the same after that. We see it in Philippians chapter 3 verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When Paul met Jesus on that dusty road to Damascus, he realized that his resume, all his works, all his obedience, his supposed righteousness, the accolades he heard, the potential he had, the pedigree that he could brag about. Paul says it was all rubbish. To get a sense of the passion that Paul has in these words, that word translated as rubbish was essentially a cuss word in Paul's day. The King James Version translates that word dung. And the King James Version is pretty accurate. When Paul met Christ, he saw the foolishness of suggesting that anything other than Christ could possibly contribute to being welcomed into the family of God. Paul looked at his own sin. Paul even looked at his own attempts at being righteous and said they were rubbish. He would agree with the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6. Isaiah says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some translations say all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, our sins, like the wind, take us away. Have you ever had the same experience as Paul? Maybe you didn't hear an audible voice from the sky. Maybe you didn't see Jesus standing right in front of you. But have you ever been going along in life, assuming that if there even is a God, all he really wants is for me to be a good person? 
All he really wants is for me to help the occasional little old lady across the street. Throw some change to a poor person every once in a while. Try not to lie so much. And then when I die, God will reward me for my righteousness. Or he'll at least reward me for being more righteous than that guy over there. And then all of a sudden, when you least expect it, you're metaphorically knocked off your horse. And you're confronted with the inconvenient truth that your attempts at righteousness, your attempts at gaining favor with God by your own works, are rubbish. Your attempts to justify yourself before a holy, perfect, and righteous God are like filthy rags. And in that moment, you finally understand that you cannot save yourself. You learn the hard way that you are completely dependent upon the grace of God and the grace of God alone. You realize that in Christ alone, our hope is found. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness, his obedience, his humility to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like Paul said last week. Now, I pray that you've had that experience. Because good, need, good deeds, nice morals, sound ethics, being a good person, doing the right thing, that's our contemporary version of circumcision. The idea that we can gain access to God through anything other than Christ. The idea that we have to add something of our own in addition to Christ's sacrifice. But only when we've realized the futility of our righteousness and the beauty of Christ's righteousness, only when God intervenes in his grace, knocks us off our horse and snaps us out of this silly attempt to earn God's favor, only then can we look forward to what Paul looked forward to. Resurrection from the dead. Salvation. Eternity with Christ. I pray that all of us would look at our works, would look at our attempts to earn God's favor, would look at all of our good deeds, would look at all of our attempts at social justice and doing the right thing and being a good person. We would look at that and say, you know what? That has nothing to do with my standing with God. That does not improve my standing with God. Because no matter how much of that stuff I do, No matter how much of that stuff I try, it will never be enough to overcome my sin. I need something else to overcome my sin. You need something else to overcome your sin. Our salvation rests in Christ. Nothing more and certainly nothing less. Our sin is so great that Christ had to live, die, and rise. But our Christ is so great that he is up to the task of our salvation. And if we suggest that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is somehow insufficient to cover our sin, somehow not enough to make us right with God, that, yeah, that's important, yeah, that's good, but I need to add a little bit of my own righteousness too. If we believe that, if we live like that, then we cheapen the cross of Christ. And we insult the grace of God. So if anyone ever tries to tell you that you're saved by Christ's righteousness and a little bit of your own too, 
or that you're saved by Christ's obedience and a little bit of your own too, that in order to be justified in God's standing, you have to get your life together first. You have to work really hard. And then maybe believing in Christ can make up the rest of the gap. If anyone ever tells you that, run away. Paul tells the Galatians to do the same thing. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If anyone ever tells you that Christ's righteousness is not enough for your salvation, if I ever tell you that Christ's righteousness, that Christ's death is not enough for your salvation, run away and don't look back. And in those moments when you find yourself tempted to trust in your own righteousness, trust in your own works, maybe you think to yourself, you know, I'm really growing. You know, I've really come a long way. God's got to be pretty pleased with me. Repent. Fix your eyes upon Christ alone. Because none of that stuff can improve your standing with God. Now, of course, a natural question comes up. If all this stuff is true, then what about our obedience? If we're saved by Christ's obedience and not our own, then what role does obedience play in the life of a Christian? Is Paul suggesting that obedience is irrelevant or meaningless? Well, Paul was often accused of suggesting that. But when he was accused of that, Paul said, May it never be. While our obedience does not save us, our obedience is the fruit, the evidence of our salvation. We don't obey in order to become saved. We obey because we are saved. In the words of theologian Johnny Cash, because you're mine, I walk the line. Because you're mine, I walk the line. We obey because we've been given the Holy Spirit. We obey because, like Paul said last week, people who are saved by Christ have the mind of Christ. And people who have the mind of Christ live like Christ. Because Christ is ours, we obey. Because God has loved us, we obey. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We now obey. Now, when Paul met Christ on that road to Damascus, he gave up quite a bit. He gave up his reputation. I mean, at first, even the Christians thought that Paul's conversion was some kind of joke or even worse, a trick so that he could continue persecuting them. Paul gave up a promising career as a well-respected Pharisee. He eventually learned to give up his own rights, his own interests, his own selfish desires, his own body, his own freedom, and even his own life. But Paul looks at that as he's writing this letter, as he's sitting in Roman chains. He looks at his resume, he looks at his past, he looks at everything that could have been. And Paul says, you know what? It's worth it. 
Because compared to Christ, all of that stuff is rubbish. All of that stuff is filthy rags. Because Paul looks at Christ and says, you know, Christ really is that perfect. Christ really is that holy. And Christ really is that glorious. And if I have to give up my reputation, and if I have to give up my bright future as a Pharisee, if I have to give up this silly attempt to prove myself righteous, if I have to give up my self-deception that I can somehow improve my standing with God, if I have to stop pretending that I'm holy and realize that I'm sinful, if that's all I have to do to attain resurrection from the dead, to be with God in eternity, it's so worth it. Because all of that stuff compared to Christ is rubbish. I pray that we would believe the exact same thing. That we would leave behind our attempts to prove ourselves. Leave behind our attempts to justify ourselves. Leave behind our attempts to gain standing with God through our own works. And place our hope, place our faith, place our future, place our eternity in the hands of Christ. The one perfect, obedient, righteous sufferer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage. It seems so strange to us, so unnatural, that we're helpless in front of you. That we are eternally vulnerable In front of you. We as people, we like to fix things on our own. We like to solve things. We like to figure things out and often don't want anybody else's help. And yet, the message of the gospel is that we are utterly, completely helpless, utterly, completely dependent upon your grace. So, Father, I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit, that you would use your word. To help us understand that. To help us embrace that. Come to grips with that. Be at peace with that. Part of the reason we don't like trusting other people is because we don't always believe that they're going to come through. We've trusted other people and they've let us down. We've given people something to do and they fail and we look bad as a result. But Father, I pray that we would trust your Son for our salvation because... He didn't fail. He has come through. That he was perfectly humble, perfectly obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might live. So, Father, help us be obedient. But help us be obedient for the right reasons. Not to earn standing with you. Not to earn points with you. But simply because we love you. Because we have the mind of Christ. Because every day that goes by, we learn to love you more. And every day that goes by, we learn that obedience is not just you being controlling, or you being in charge, or you trying to domineer over us. That obedience to you brings us joy. 
that obedience to you is for our good. But Father, thank you for Christ's obedience that saves us. May we never, ever forget that. We love you. We ask this all in your Son's name. Amen.